InfoTrack continues. Once again, here's Chris Whitting. Mental illness can strike anyone at any time. If it happens to you or a loved one, what are the treatment options and are they affordable? InfoTrack's Roy Mackey is here with an expert to get the facts. Roy? Thanks, Chris. Our guest is Andrew Sperling, Director of Federal Advocacy at the National Alliance on Mental Illness, also known as NAMI. Mr. Sperling, welcome to InfoTrack. Happy to be here. Access to mental health care in the U.S. has improved quite a bit in the past few years, hasn't it? Well, we've made some progress, but there's still a long way to go. In what ways? Well, the Affordable Care Act has helped in many respects. One of the most important things the Affordable Care Act did for those states that elected to expand Medicaid eligibility up to 138% of the federal poverty level would allow a large group of people living with serious mental illness to get access to health care coverage they didn't have before. Up until this time, the only way to get onto Medicaid if you were a single adult with mental illness is to have an impairment that was so severe that you qualified for a program called SSI or Supplemental Security Income. It's a very high standard to meet. In states that have elected to expand Medicaid eligibility, all you have to do is be below 138% of the federal poverty level, and you're then eligible for Medicaid. In addition to what's available under the Affordable Care Act, also known as Obamacare, probably more employers than ever are offering mental health coverage as part of their standard health coverage, right? That's correct. And we never had that many employers that completely excluded coverage for mental illness treatment. It's just that they impose limitations or conditions that NAMI viewed as unfair and unreasonable. Back in 2008, we got a law passed called the Paul Wellstone and Pete Domenici Mental Health Parity and Addiction Equity Act. It was actually attached, believe it or not, to the legislation in 2008, the emergency legislation to bail out the financial services industry. But this law requires health plans, employer-provided health insurance plans, sponsored by employers with 50 or more workers, to cover mental health and substance abuse benefits on the same terms and conditions as medical surgical coverage at parity. And that's the word we use refer to this euphemistically as the federal mental health parity law. So it doesn't require that they actually cover those benefits. It simply says if you cover mental health and substance abuse, you have to do it on the same terms and conditions as all other benefits, meaning that you can't impose numerical limits on, for example, inpatient days or outpatient visits. You can't have higher cost-sharing rates for those services than you do for medical surgical coverage. Aside from the improved access, though, paying for care is still a problem, isn't it? For some people, it is, no question about it. And oftentimes, finding a provider that's willing to take private insurance is sometimes difficult, particularly for psychiatrists in many communities. Many of them now refuse to take any insurance, including not only private employer health insurance, but also Medicare and Medicaid. Now, that's for individual psychiatrists. It's somewhat different for people that are served in the public sector mental health system. That's often a little easier to find a public sector provider, a community mental health center, or other type of nonprofit service agency that, by and large, will take Medicaid and sometimes Medicare as well. There are also other ways that people who work for larger corporations may have options such as employee assistant programs. Tell us about those. Employee assistance programs have been around for a number of years. They exist both for mental health, but they tend to be more prevalent in the realm of substance abuse. And they provide sometimes even on-site counseling and other types of assistance for particularly people that might have a drug or alcohol problem with the idea being that drug or alcohol problem can substantially limit productivity and create problems in the workplace, and employers want to address that as aggressively as they can so they avoid people having to leave work or potentially having to be terminated. But by and large, offer services on a confidential basis, 
and it can be very helpful to people in seeking recovery. Our guest on InfoTrack is Andrew Sperling, Director of Federal Advocacy at the National Alliance on Mental Illness, and we're discussing how people can find ways to afford mental health care treatment if they need it. Andrew, there are some ways that people can save money as far as group therapy. Can you just talk about some of the pluses and minuses of that approach? Well, I'm not a clinician, so I can't necessarily speak to group therapy. You know, it's always being effective for a particular individual. But there is a strong evidence base both for group therapy and individual therapy that follows the treatment guidelines that have been set up for interventions such as CBT, cognitive behavioral therapy. So what NAMI insists on is not necessarily group that's necessarily better than individual therapy. What's important is that the clinician that's leading group therapy or individual therapy follows evidence-based practice and the guidelines that the American Psychiatric Association and other professional societies have come up with, clinical treatment guidelines for cognitive behavioral therapy. It's adherence to those evidence-based standards that makes therapy successful. Andrew, what are the most common forms of mental illness in the U.S.? You mentioned a moment ago addictions, uh, and I'm assuming that may be number one, but can you talk about some of the other more common ones that crop up? Certainly the most prevalent and most severe is schizophrenia, which is really a thought disorder where an individual experiencing schizophrenia, diagnosed with schizophrenia, has symptoms such as paranoid delusions and auditory hallucinations and other types of paranoia. And the most severe form of the illness, most severe phase of the illness is what we refer to as psychosis or a psychotic break. And it can be quite severe and very debilitating and requires oftentimes acute short-term hospitalization. But we have effective treatments for schizophrenia, particularly atypical antipsychotic medications that have been on the market for 15, 20 years now can be very successful in treating both the positive symptoms and the negative symptoms of schizophrenia. But the second most prevalent is major depression. And people will experience depression over their lifetime, but when it falls into you know, severe clinical depression and recurs more often, those are people we define as having major depression. About 9 million Americans living with major depression. And it can also be a very debilitating disorder and can also be associated with suicidal ideology. It's obviously very dangerous. And suicide is an enormous killer in America. Up to 38,000 Americans this year will take their own life. Certainly more than automobile accidents, more than homicide. Huge mortality associated with depression. Another major disorder is bipolar disorder, which is a complex, formally referred to as manic depression, where people can experience as a mood disorder, where people can experience the highs of mania and the lows of depression. It's a very difficult disorder to treat because of the cyclical nature as someone moves in and out of mania and, and depression and trying to find the right combination of therapies to allow that person to have a stable mood and avoid the highs and the lows. But obviously also a disorder with a, a huge public health burden associated with it. Andrew, each of these disorders you just touched on, I'm sure, have very specific and differing symptoms. But could you just give us some general guidelines on how someone can recognize that maybe a loved one does need help? It's agitation, lack of motivation for someone with depression, oftentimes an enormous lack of motivation, loss of appetite. All these types of symptoms, when they come together, the families are often the first to recognize it, but often face the biggest challenge in trying to get their loved one to seek treatment. And it can be very, very difficult for families. But we do have help out there. NAMI is certainly an organization that can help. Again, we are not providers. We're not clinicians. We're, by and large, people living with mental illness and their families. We have support groups and we have ways to help people get into treatment, ways to refer them to treatment. And we have 1,100 local NAMI organizations all over the country that help families 
get a loved one into treatment every single day. Andrew Sperling, Director of Federal Advocacy at the National Alliance on Mental Illness. Andrew, final question. If you were to choose perhaps the biggest misconception about mental illness, what would you say it is? The public not understand that these are no-fault disorders and that we too often blame the person experiencing mental illness and too often erroneously identify it as a character flaw or lack of will or lack of motivation on the part of the individual. I think having people understand what someone's going through when they experience severe depression or severe anxiety that is not their fault. These are the neurons in the brain misfiring, imbalances of neurochemicals in the brain, and they are no-fault disorders. And I think that's the challenge we continue to face to try and educate the public about the true nature of serious mental illness. Andrew Sperling, Director of Federal Advocacy at the National Alliance on Mental Illness. Andrew, what is your website address? NAMI.org, N-A-M-I.org. Well, thank you very much for joining us on InfoTrack. Thank you. And for InfoTrack, I'm Roy Mackey. You're listening to InfoTrack, the weekly show with information you should know. A production of Syndication Networks of Chicago.